think that's a piece that sometimes gets missed, you know, is because we do hear a lot about the federal government's response. And what's not kind of shared is that the community is where it's going to be. I mean, that's where people are living and that's where people are. And it's nice. Like I said, I take great comfort in knowing that communities have been preparing and, and developing those relationships for a long time. And so not to make light of anything like Absolutely. that, those relationships are in place. And I think that's a story that probably needs to be told is that this is not new. They're not meeting these people for the first time. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join your hosts, Michael and Jenna, as they discuss all things ORAU through interviews with our experts who provide innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers. They'll talk about ORU's storied history, how we're impacting an ever-changing world, and our commitment to our community. Welcome to Further Together, the ORU podcast. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Today we are talking about something that has been making the news for months, I think we can safely say. We're talking about all things COVID-19, with particular focus, though, on ORU's capabilities around pandemic preparedness, medical countermeasures, just some of the skill sets that some of our folks here at ORU have. And I have three guests with me today. I have Freddie Gray, Julie Crumley, and Wade Williamson. And if y'all would do me a favor and just go kind of around the table, so to speak, and briefly, Freddie, if you'll start, tell us who you are and what you do for ORAU. Sure. Thanks, Michael. Um, I'm Freddie Gray. I'm the director of our Health Energy and Environment uh, Health Preparedness and Health Communications Program. Thank you, sir. Julie? Julie Crumley, a research and evaluation specialist in the Health Communications and Technical Training Program. Excellent. And Wade? Uh, Wade Williamson. I'm with the Occupational Health Program here at ORU, um, BSN, RN, COHNS certification. Thank you, sir. Um, so, Wade, this first question might be um, better for you to answer, so you might want to hold the microphone. <laughs> you might want to keep the microphone. Um, we're hearing a lot about COVID-19, obviously, and that's what we're here to talk about. What are some of the symptoms that COVID-19 presents? Right. Well, the um, symptoms essentially are um, similar to the flu, but uh, a little bit different. Um, Primarily listed uh, through the CDC are um, fever, um, 100.4 or higher, cough and shortness of breath. There are various variations of that as well, but at the end of the day, they're kind of flu-like symptoms. Okay. Which I'm assuming, given that it's also flu season and flu's mm-hmm. been around for months mm-hmm. as well, um, and is far more active, mm-hmm. we might say again, <laughs> mm-hmm. for the population, is far more active than COVID-19. The symptoms are relatively similar. So does that make it more difficult to detect? Well, there is testing out there available, um, but there has been apparently a shortage of, of, of getting the supplies to the hands that need it to do the testing. They are working on that, as I understand it now, um, within the next week or so, maybe sooner. Um, you know, you ask the questions, you know, have you been to one of the, the CDC travel alert countries? Um, some basics like that. 
Um, other than that, the follow-up is your, the recommendation is just to follow up with your doctor and take their guidance as to what you need to do. Okay. They'll have similar questions, but it's more of a trying to figure out where you've been and who you were associated with. Are you in a city or, or, or province or area that has um, that has active, a lot of active cases going on? Right. And, and this is an illness that's spread through droplets, right? So it's not like... Yeah, so what they're saying is it's, you know, within the six-foot radius of, of people's um, exposure, um, cough, sneeze, droplets, things like that, um, you can, um, it, I understand it can live on uh, hard surfaces for a number of hours or days even as well. So depending, I guess, the type of touching you do to that and what you've got on your hands or whatever. Sure. Um, so it's, it's, it's similar to the flu. Okay. You know. um, if you read the news, read or listen to the news, there's a lot of panic, right? People are overbuying um, hand sanitizer and toilet paper and things like that. Do people need to seriously be panicked about this? And that's for any of you, but <laughs> do people need to be panicked about COVID-19? Well, I think when you use the word panic, it's, it's like people's fear of the unknown. So there is certain uncertainty and certain amount of not knowing what um, you know, you don't have a vaccine for it. Right. You're not really sure. You know, we understand kind of how you get it, but there'll be much greater understanding as the weeks, months, and years even um, proceed, because you'll will understand how it works and how it functions in society and in the person. So, I think that's the main thing. It's just the fear, it's that innate fear of the unknown. There's not really a treatment for it. You just have to kind of go home, ride it out. If you get really sick, you go to the hospital. You get right. quarantined. You have the media showing signs. You know. People in hazmat suits, people drive, taking wow. people into the hospitals. Right. Um, that all drives that fear of the, you know, the fear people have. Right. And who are the folks who are most at risk at this point? Of seems to be mostly the elderly population. Um, nursing homes, obviously, you've seen it been really Absolutely. hit really hard. Um, I think they're backing off a little bit, from what I understand today, of the children. I think infants and toddlers still there's still a risk there associated. Um, but the children and, and people with non-immune compromised situations, apparently, for most part, do pretty well with it. Even they, I've heard a number of eighty percent don't even know they've had it. Sure, I don't know about that, but um, yeah, it's they most healthy people use do it pretty well with it. Gotcha. Okay, and then um, what can I do to protect myself? Um, the same things you. Same things you do, uh, you hear people uh, tell you all the time. Um, wash your hands often. Don't touch your face. If you touch your face, uh, you want to wash your hands. <laughs> um, so the main things you want to do with prevention, treatment of coronavirus or any flu-like or, or something you may have, um, avoid close contact with people who are sick, obviously. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you're sick. That's huge. Um, Cover your cough or sneeze with the tissue. Do the sneeze into your, you know, uh, elbow, uh, clothes, whatever, if you need to. Disinfect frequently, and that's using an EPA-approved disinfectant. Um, I think typically that's 60% alcohol-based. Um, uh, follow CDC's recommendations. Very good website. They've got a lot of information out there. It's pretty current. Um, wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Um, my rule of thumb is... Um, Wet your hands, you know, lather them up really good. Um, 20 seconds of singing the happy birthday song <laughs> twice. That's what people, you hear that a lot as well. And it, it holds true. 
about 20 seconds, rinse your hands and dry them off and you should be fine. Awesome. Very helpful information. I appreciate that. Um, Freddie, you've had experience working in other pandemic situations. Um, what was that like and how is this situation both similar and different from what you've seen before? Well, I think um, like Wade pointed out, you know, when you ask him the question about should people be, you know, panicky, nervous and things. And it's interesting that most of the precautions you hear about all the time, you know, wash your hands, you know, avoid close contact with people that are infected and sick. Um, stay at home if you're sick, you know, those kinds of things. So there's not anything that we shouldn't be doing anyway, particularly right. during the flu season. That's right. Those are just great, basic best practices that we should incorporate Always, I've you know, seen, so I've seen a meme on social media that says something like I've been washing my hands since before it was a thing. Yeah, you know? yeah <laughs> so. that's, that's exactly. So there's not any kind of new, oh, you know, new, right. new poppy things. Um, so, yeah. So so we've been involved in the preparedness arena, gosh, since 2003. So we were asked um, by we had a contract with Center for Disease Control, the Division of Global Migration and Quarantine, DGMQ, which is where. The quarantine stations are housed within CDC. And in 2003, there were roughly about eight. And so we were asked to go to each of the eight uh, quarantine stations and do a tabletop exercise to basically walk through how they would um, handle an infectious disease coming in on an international conveyance. That could be an airplane, a train, a bus, car, anything across the borders. And uh, at that time, it was geared towards SARS. And so... The, the following couple of years, it was just a progression of, of the, the ask that we were asked of from CDC. And so they progressed into um, a pandemic influenza. And so, you know, we went back to the quarantine stations eight. And at that time, they had gone to 12. And even the next year, they'd gone up to 20 something. And so basically, we just did a, an exercise with not only the, the quarantine stations on how the the federal officers would um, handle getting those sick patients off of the plane, but also how they would handle dealing with the 350 remaining passengers who were exposed. They may not be showing signs or symptoms, but they were exposed on the plane. So it was really a fascinating piece of work, and we did it all the way until 2015, is that we we worked with the – the CDC at the local level at the quarantine stations, but then they have great existing relationships with local public health, local health care, local emergency managers, faith-based organizations. And we tried to gather all those together and had a, a it was basically a, a two-day workshop, three-day workshop, where we would just go in and say, what would you do? How would this impact your community? So to get at your um and I apologize. I'm I'm not really okay. a bullet person. I'm a narrative. You're so okay. a lot of people say, you know, just tell me what you want me to listen to, and I, to, you know. So, um, but um, so when so we had and we helped CDC develop these tools that would allow communities to better plan and better prepare for exactly what's going on today. Right. And so. Um, when H1N1 hit a number of years ago, um, we were contacted and we still had an existing contact and working with CDC. And our ask from CDC was not necessarily in a response mode physically being there. Okay. It was more of, okay, take the tools that you all created and tweak them and see where commonalities so you can adjust and accommodate those so that they could be disseminated to the local communities on how to handle H1N1. And still sort of working with those tools to tweak them? Yeah, I think we're looking at those. Um, It's not, um, 
you know, like Wade said, it's it's just a lot of the unknown. Sure. So I think that's part of what we're trying to do. There's a lot of tools that are out there that really provide a very strong framework and foundation for local at the local levels, because all responses are, are at the local level. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of tools that do that. So now how does this, how can you tweak these and adjust and modify so that you're not starting from scratch and you've got some kind of resources there? And those are on CDC's website as okay. well. Great. And I know we've had several conversations about mm-hmm. um, pandemic response and just disaster response, emergency response mm-hmm. in the time that I've been at ORAU. And it always seems like it comes back to the community, that it's, as you said, the response is the community's response. And mm-hmm. so bringing all of those organizations, not just the emergency responders and healthcare and hospitals, et cetera, but the faith-based orgs and, you know, some of the other nonprofits that might get involved in what that response looks like. I mean, mm-hmm. it's important for everybody to be ready. Oh, I agree entirely. And and I think it's important for everybody to know that these relationships are not just been built today. They've been in existence for a very long time. Absolutely. And our experience, the way we experienced a lot of these communities that we went out to is that the relationship with the federal government, the relationship at the local level, these people were and lived by the foundation. You don't want to wait till a response to get to know your neighbor. Right. You know, you need to know who they are. And they work wonderfully together. And there's a lot of good sharing of information, a lot of um, um, collaborative effort, partnership efforts. Um, And so there's a lot of people at the local level that are just tied together as brothers and sisters, so to speak, and, um, you know, doing a very, very good job. Excellent. Um, You brought this up in talking about one of the drills in the quarantine centers, and I only ask this because we've seen a lot of media coverage, obviously, about um, folks being evacuated off of cruise ships and you know brought to some of the quarantine centers. Have you have you been in one of those centers, and you know what does it look like? What do people experience when they're there? Well, I mean, I think there's. Um We've been in the quarantine station offices. Okay. And so, you know, I, I don't know if that explains or answers the question. So I think one of the, the challenges is to find, you know, locations where you can house or keep people that do have. So there's a difference between quarantine and isolation. So right. quarantine right. would be basically those who have been exposed but are not showing any signs and symptoms. Isolation would be, you see that in the hospitals a lot. Right. They have the signs and the symptoms. You want to keep folks away from each one of those. And so I, th- I think there's some challenges and it's not a one size fits all, you know, from what we've experienced in the past is that, you know, the, the and here again, it's about relationships, relationship building and, and relationships at the community level and the federal level are just key. So they have already, a lot of communities have already worked and said, okay, what makes sense to house these people at this location so that they can have their needs met, they can be uh, quarantined in a nice facility um, and, and trying to handle their needs. That's great. So someone gets the call, these people are, you know, these folks are coming from this airplane or this cruise ship and the community mobilizes. I mean, it's not just, you know, <laughs> someone's going, okay, Yeah, I think there's, <laughs> let me check my list. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there's like a, a lead agencies and, you know, um, and so they kind of have their plan and they know exactly, you know, there's a lot of. So so the things you always see and hear about is communication and coordination. Right. And I think at the local level, they've been working on those things for a long time. And so I, I take great comfort in knowing that, you know, those are 
in place, and they are are being worked through exercises and activities. And here, it's an actual real event. I mean, right. to, to be honest with you, this is kind of an interesting. I, I, you don't want to say an ideal solution, but back years ago, when we were kind of planning for you know a, an avian influenza or, or pandemic influenza, we always kind of developed a scenario that you know it's it's a it's across the borders, it's in. Asia or whatever, and it's going to be here tomorrow, you know, so ah, everybody rush. But here, you know, it's been a progression and that makes sense. And so now it kind of gives everybody a chance to kind of blow off the dust of their pandemic plans or to start looking and saying, okay, where are the holes? You know, where are the challenges, you know, and all those kinds of things. And it does afford us a little bit of a window, I think, as you know, now, now the numbers are just still low in the sense of people that are infected that we know about that may or may not have been tested. Um, But it does give, it seems like gives communities a little bit of time to kind of gear up, get everybody in place and start, you know, discussing on how we're going to handle this. And as you said, I mean, communities drill and do exercises on a regular basis. So it's not like this is new. Um, I worked in public health before I came here. So, you know, I was part of some of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I mean, everyone works really well together. And, you know, i I was a patient in a, <laughs> in a drill, so you know I felt like my needs were met because everyone's working together. So um, I feel like, from a general public perspective, to understand that, um, I would hope would be heartening <laughs> that their communities really are ready to deal with yeah, this. And and that's um, forgive me for interrupting, but I, okay. I think that's a piece that sometimes gets missed. You know, is because. We do hear a lot about the federal government's response. And what's not kind of shared is that the community is where it's going to be. I mean, that's where people are living and that's where people are. And it's nice. Like I said, I take great comfort in knowing that communities have been preparing and and developing those relationships for a long time. And so not to make light of anything like that, those relationships are in place. And I think that's a story that probably needs to be told is that this is not new. They're not meeting these people for the first time. Right. You right. know, they, they've had We've those never done place. That That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's not happening. Um, Julie, you've done research about non-pharmaceutical interventions for pandemic flu, um, that sort of thing. What kinds of those non-pharmaceutical interventions might be useful with COVID-19 and the situation that we're in now. I think that um, Wade uh, referenced a couple of good recommendations earlier, um, basically washing your hands. I think that uh, sort of the CDC has looked back on evidence-based, basically looking back at the H1N1 pandemic and sort of lessons learned um, as a result of that pandemic and finding evidence-based strategies that could be recommended to communities and individuals and health departments to um, enact during an event such as this. So um, essentially they fall under the three general categories of personal, community, and environmental non-pharmaceutical interventions. And it's a strategy. So depending on what's going on in your community, in your area, um, you may be asked to engage in um, different levels of these non-pharmaceutical interventions to essentially help slow the spread. Um, And things like this would be, you know, the hand washing, as Wade mentioned earlier, uh, 
the social distancing, mm-hmm. to, you know, if it's active in your community, they may start doing things that like school cancellations or close, you know, um, canceling large events, um, mass gatherings, like conferences, um, and then just basic environmental um, protections, cleaning, disinfecting surfaces and whatnot. So essentially reiterating what Wade and Freddie both you know, covered are really the basics of what you should do in the time of any sort of re- respiratory pandemic. Okay. Um, and stay home. I know there have been sort of on and off these stories of like, this person was quarantined, but he took his daughter to school or, you know, like if you're quarantined or you're self-quarantining, whatever, like stay home, like for real, like, you know, um, or if you're working from home, you know, you, your workplace has sent you home to work, stay home, right? Yeah, and I think that was, and Julie and I were talking um, just, you know, as far as some of this work that we do, and I think Julie kind of, I don't know if she will remember this or not, but she had said, you know, because you hear a lot of things, what do I need to get? You know, what yeah, do I need yeah. to have at home? You know, do I need to have, uh, you know, two weeks supplies and things? And and I think, Julie, I don't know how you worded it, but it was something like, if you need, if you think about what's going to cause you to leave the house, that's that's the stuff you. That's kind of is that is that kind of my paraphrasing you right, Julie? Yeah, that was sort of my basic um, reference point of you know, is there is it something that I've got to leave the house for in the next couple of weeks that I just absolutely can't live without? Then that's probably what I need to have. Okay, and of course that could be different for anybody depending on their nutritional needs, their medication, exactly. et cetera. But the, exactly. they should really think about that. Yeah. I mean, that's what, what's going to cause them. You know, I mean, I told my my uh, oldest who uh, just made me a, a grandfather, a three-month-old <laughs> grandfather now. And so Excellent. he was like, what do I need to get Cooper? And I'm like, you know, formula and diapers and stuff. And I said, but think about what do you want? I mean, if it, if ice cream is a big deal for you, you know, I mean, if that's what's going to pull you out of the house, you know, and if you're quarantined and that's what's going to pull you out of the house, then, you know, as ignorantly as that might sound or silly as that might sound, get make sure you have some on stock. You know? Yeah, you know, and if, if you have to go out, go at three o'clock in the morning when nobody's there, right. you know, that kind of right. thing. Because, yeah, you know, you get 10 days in and you're stir crazy. Oh, yeah. You got to You want live. some ice cream. You know, yeah. You <laughs> like, got, I mean. I want to get out of the house. You have to work what makes sense, you know. Right. And similarly, with, you know, speaking of, of kids and such, you know, that might also include entertainment for them uh-huh. um, in whatever form. And so, you know, making sure you have that sort of amount of what you need for children's entertainment. It's not always just about, um, you know, the initial protective measure measures of you know, washing your hands. I mean, that's included, but, you know, anything that's needed to keep everybody at home safely. Gotcha. Um, I've covered all my questions. So is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure we mention? Well, I had one more thing. Sure. It's kind of the, the elephant in the room is the face mask. Oh, you know, yes. <laughs> I feel I would be amiss if I didn't say something about the face masks. Um, so essentially, you know, you've got loop face masks that kind of just loosely fit over your face. We see a lot of those on TV and media um, and out in public. Um, those essentially don't do anything to protect the individual from getting much of anything. Okay. So they're pretty much useless um, on the 
the positive side, however, if you did have a sickness or illness or the flu um, and you wore one of those and you're able to wear one of those, that would kind of keep it in. So you don't have that cough if you can't bring your arm up to your, your mouth or nose or whatever. It might actually, if enough of those are out there, it might protect other know, people. Other people. Okay. The flip side of that is that, you know, we rely on our medical people, first responders, hospital. They all need some of the surgical masks and then the N95 masks, which are a tighter fitting mask that you have to be fit tested for. Um, those are getting snatched up, too, because there's a lot of stores that ha carry those types of products. Right. And so there's a shortage of those. So then that, you know falls back to the maybe the hospital people that really don't need to get sick because you just can't go out and make another nurse or another doctor. Right. You have to right. have those people there to care for the people or you don't have much at all. Right. So that's one thing I wanted to touch on. Okay. So you probably don't need it. So <laughs> right. Basically, you probably don't need the little um, loop face mask and the others you need to be fit tested for or you might wear those wrong as well and not do you much benefit at all. Especially if you have facial hair, as I understand it. Yes. Yes. There's fit a lot of there's issue. a lot of factors, facial structure, features, the amount of um, skin you have on your face. Is it going to get a good fit? You have to have a, a, a fit test that has to be done typically at a, a clinic or hospital okay. uh, setting to to make sure you can wear that and not have whatever's outside. In the face mask into you. Yeah. Okay. Freddie or Julie, anything else? I would say have a plan. Um, okay. You know, at least think through a plan and sort of where you're going to, what you need, what you're going to do, um, what your triggers are to um, sort of engage in sort of different behaviors for yourself like what what your needs are but so the stuff that you need the stuff that you might want the you know be prepared to stay at home for a couple of weeks whether it's you and your family whether you're working from home because you've been sent home or you choose to stay home to avoid other people um I, right i mean yeah and i think specifically i was also thinking where you're going to obtain your information, mm -hmm. um, making sure that your source of information as possible is, you know, is up to date and reliable and trustworthy. Um, so not Facebook to me. <laughs> well, um, unless it's an official government Facebook page <laughs> that's communicating official government information, um, then I'm hesitant to say, right. but um, Understood. yeah, just trying to, you know, plan ahead. Where are you going to go to for your standard, um, you know, trustworthy information and sort of uh, be able to block out other unreliable information sources? And I think to piggyback off of what Julie says with the plan is, you know, make sure make sure that you know where your loved ones, you know, somebody's got looking out for the, the neighbors, you know, and practicing that whole community relationship thing is that we're not all just by ourselves. I mean, you know, right. we do have neighbors that are needy. We have neighbors that are elderly. We have, ne you know, neighbors that just need um, the reassurance Absolutely. and to be able to to make sure that we check on them and, and everybody on that part is good. Excellent. Very good point. Um, and in terms of travel, I know some organizations have provided gu guidance on what to do about travel. Others haven't. Um, I know I'm scheduled to go to a conference at the end of the month that is now going to be virtual for three days, which <laughs> will be interesting. Um, but, you know, I mean, make your own decision, basically. If you're uncomfortable with the idea of 
getting on a plane and traveling somewhere? I mean, does that make sense to... You know, I think it does. I mean, I think there's obviously federal guidelines in place that we want to adhere to. And like Julie said, and Wade said, I mean, stick with, uh, you know, CDC's got um, several things that are published out there on their website. Very easy, very user friendly to see what places you may or may not want to travel to. And then look at the, you know, the conditions of place in your is it is it essential travel? You know, it may be fun, but is it essential? And so. If it's a personal trip, I think, you know, the the, the, the traveler alone has got to make that kind of decision. If it's a work trip, then, you know, I know within, you know, ORAU, they uh, they will make ex- at the executive level, level, they'll make those kinds of decisions with a lot of input. Right. Um, and so um, it's just, yeah, I think it just goes, if, if it's not anything that's that's manda- mandatory or, or mandated, then just kind of think about does it. Is it, is it is really it something yeah. you need to do? Okay. So the bottom line is <laughs> make a plan. <laughs> Be informed from reliable sources. If you're sick, <laughs> stay home and wash your hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we had to bottom line this whole conversation, right? That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Thank you all very much. Freddie, if folks wanted to learn more about our preparedness capabilities, medical countermeasures, they can find you and Julie on the website. Sure, right? sure. Yes, I think so. we're both on there. And uh, so would, you know, anything we can do, definitely, that, that we'd uh, really enjoy that. Awesome. So find them on ORU.org. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU, and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.